Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. First off, what you need to know about us is that thinking differently and innovatively about solving big social issues is what makes us tick. We love offering new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. So we hope you'll be inspired to make a difference wherever you are. We're changing the way, we're changing the world. Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast with me, your host, Ginzi Khatebe. According to a new report from Oxfam, up to 70 countries will only be able to vaccinate 1 in 10 people against COVID-19 this year due to the high cost of the vaccines and their lack of availability. It's what's being called a global vaccine apartheid. Wealthier nations in the global north, like Canada, are buying up vaccine doses to vaccinate their populations up to five times over, while others like South Africa are having to pay almost two and a half times more for vaccines and still don't have enough to go around. This disparity has led organizations like Amnesty International, Frontline AIDS, Global Justice Now and Oxfam to raise the red flag and join forces in a People's Vaccine Alliance. Their aim is to campaign for better access to vaccines and for pharmaceutical corporations to share their technology through the WHO COVID-19 technology access pool to enable the manufacture of billions more doses for all who need them. To many in the healthcare sector, the situation is all too familiar. Perhaps you can remember that it took South Africa six years to put in place antiretroviral treatment for HIV AIDS patients while thousands needlessly died. This mirrored a global struggle to improve treatment for HIV AIDS patients. The UNAIDS Program Coordinating Board heard recently how communities engaged with global health authorities for over 25 years to advocate for those living with HIV and AIDS. This work paid off in several ways, including the development of the Medicine Patent Pool for HIV, which saw the manufacture of millions of cost-effective antiretrovirals and brought down the cost of medication from about $100,000 a year to about $100. There is a lesson here about how a concerted and a unified campaign aimed at global health authorities can be brought to bear on the vaccine response for COVID-19. And this does not have to come at the expense of profits for the pharmaceutical companies or take a quarter of a century, as we have the example of those who have gone before us to show us the way. Though the rollout of the vaccine has been on everyone's lips, both locally and globally, the conversation has certainly differed from place to place. In many parts of the world, often due to misinformation via social and traditional media channels, the conversation is packed with conspiracy theories and fueled by fear. In other places, it's a topic that brings about a glimmer of hope and excitement about the world returning to a somewhat normal state. In a country like South Africa, it's a conversation that is slowly revealing another side of the coin. The idea that the vaccine is perhaps not so much a healthcare issue as it is an accessibility and, quite frankly, a social issue. The message has to be communicated loudly, clearly and insistently. There can be no social justice without equitable access to vaccines and critical treatments. And the best way to get the ball rolling is through collaboration. The good news is that the international campaign for a people's vaccine is gathering pace. Then there's also the Free the Vaccine campaign, which advocates for COVID-19 diagnostic tools, treatments, and vaccines to be free from patents and available to everyone, everywhere, free at the point of delivery. In addition to the C19 People's Coalition, an emerging civil society seeking to ensure that South Africa's response to the COVID-19 crisis is one that is rooted in social justice and democratic principles. 
The C19 People's Coalition prioritizes the most vulnerable who face the pandemic with hunger, weakened immune systems, and poor access to housing, healthcare, and social safety nets. This rapidly growing coalition includes community structures, trade unions, faith-based organizations, informal workers' organizations, civics, social movements, rural groups, national and provincial NGOs working across all social sectors, frontline responders such as community health workers, shelters, public interest law firms, and migrant and refugee-focused organizations. And on that note, I'm excited to have Professor Leslie London, Chair of Public Health Medicine in the School of Public Health and Family Medicine at the University of Cape Town, and Katusha de Villiers, Health Systems Innovation Lead at the Bertha Center, on the show today as we talk all things vaccine. So welcome, Leslie and Katusha. And I know, Katusha, you work with us on the podcast, but today is the first time we're actually having you in front of the mic. So, so we're looking forward to the conversation. And we really just wanted to start off with, you know, what's been happening, what we've been reading about. The vaccine has arrived in South Africa. Everybody's talking about it. And there's a lot of fanfare, which is drowning out a lot of the voices around people who are asking about the equity conversation, the access conversation. And I guess where I wanted to start this conversation is that amidst all of this information that is around us, what's getting lost in the noise? What are we not hearing in the news bulletins and the headlines? And I'll start with you, Leslie. Well, you know, if you think back to December, we actually didn't have any vaccine. You know, uh, everything was COVAX. Uh, and suddenly, from uh, one presidential announcement to one ministerial press conference, things changed. And the situation has changed so rapidly, you know, week to week, day to day, hour to hour, that it's hard to keep up. But I think the thing that really struck me about this was, you know, COVAX, the platform set up through um, the accelerator, through WHO Garvey, was meant to be a solution for low-middle-income countries. Uh, South Africa has completely bypassed COVAX, essentially, because COVAX doesn't really work for low-middle-income countries. Um, we will pay basically top dollar if we purchase through COVAX. We probably will be fairly disadvantaged because we won't know exactly what we're getting. Uh, we won't know when we will get it. Uh, and we might not get what we really need. So I imagine if we purchase through COVAX 9 million doses of the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine and then discovered, whoops, it doesn't work so well for us, uh, which is you know enough of a problem with 1.5 million doses. So I think the situation globally is very complex and quite inequitous. And I think the call for um, technology transfer to developing countries to enable production outside of the very limited number of producers is, I think, the key thing for equity. Thanks, Leslie. I mean, Katusha, you've just written an op-ed about this and the importance of thinking about equity, particularly for countries in the global south. What do you think is not you know, being acknowledged in, in the conversation that we're having about it? I think uh, what's not being acknowledged or what is interesting for us to think about is the role of South Africa's sort of practical obligations to our sister countries in Africa. Um, you know, we have millions of citizens entering and exiting our borders every year and a vaccination that's only focused on South Africans is is really going to be less than effective, not only in protecting our country, but also in protecting the rest of Africa. So what are our leadership roles um, 
for the rest of Africa? You know, how do we think about that um, as as a country? Um, we certainly don't want to be seen as hoarding vaccines. We don't want to be seen as um, not sharing information um, and not looking after um, citizens. Um, so I think that's an interesting sort of area to think about, not necessarily that we have the uh, obligation to to carry all of this, but it's just um, would be would be something that I would encourage folks to keep in mind. Thanks, Katisha. And I think reflecting on both what you and Leslie are speaking about, and Leslie, I want to join a little bit about what you were saying around how COVAX doesn't necessarily serve South Africa, and, and I guess the complexity of it all, and what Katisha is saying now about the role that we have to play in the region on the continent. So, I mean, acknowledging that, for example, Ramaphosa currently sits as, you know, chair of the African Union, and the fact that I was looking on the map when the vaccines arrived, you know, South Africa sort of turned a little bit green, but the rest of the continent still doesn't have access to the vaccine. Thinking about that, then what role should we be playing regionally and in the rest of the continent around providing leadership around exactly the issues that you're raising around COVAX perhaps not being useful? Should we be thinking about leaning into other institutions, other forms of advocacy? Well, I mean, it's very interesting that, you know, South Africa actually was the leader proposing a waiver at the World Trade Organization of Intellectual Property on the basis that patents are an obstacle to um, access to health technologies. I mean, it's a complex debate, but that was South Africa taking world leadership uh, and being supported by a number of other developing countries, Eswatini, um, many other countries, uh, and being resisted by clearly the countries of the North who have big uh, biotechnology industries. Um, but at the same time, we saw South Africa being quite vaccine nationalist, you know, basically when uh, the political pressure was on. South Africa went out there and negotiated those bilateral deals, and now we have somewhere between 30 and 40 million doses, not entirely clear, um, far ahead of any other African country. And you can understand why a political leader has to respond to their own constituency, but, you know, colleagues of mine in Equinet, which is the network on equity in health in Eastern Southern Africa, are basically asking, how come South Africa is not pushing through the African Union, through SADC, through these structures to be more active. Um, and we should be providing that sort of leadership. I mean, we have a public-private um, biotechnology institute that's capable of producing vaccines, maybe not de novo, but certainly reprocessing, certainly more than fill and finish, which is currently what's being proposed. BioVac could be ramped up, could have been ramped up quite a long time ago to deliver vaccines for the region, you know. It's obviously not an uncomplicated issue, very technical, but we could have, we should have, I think, had the foresight to say, well, these vaccines are coming. We need to have many more production spaces for these vaccines than currently because there's actually a very limited number of producers. And that would have really opened up a supply that isn't there at the moment. We're kind of hostage to the limited capacity of producers. And that would have been really quite uh, foresightful. Leslie, I want to lean into what you were speaking about, about being reactive and, and having foresight. And I think, you know, having closed off 2020, one of the things that we've realized is that the pandemic has also opened up a lot of opportunity to, you know, bring about change in our institutions and in our organizations and to seed new ideas. And that's really what we also wanted to talk to you about is around the formation of C19 and the coalition that developed out of that. And I'm I was hoping that you could paint a picture for us. What brought all the organizations that are under the C19 umbrella together? How did that story start? 
So, you know, I obviously can't speak for C19, but I've been part of it since it started. Um, and the way I read it was, you know, this epidemic arrived and it was a terrain which was completely new for people because, you know, we campaigned for health system reform. Uh, people in the social security space had campaigned for, you know, less austerity. But this was just all-encompassing because it affected every sector. Um, and so it was a very spontaneous kind of amalgam of people. started with, a, I think, a training activity at the Center for uh, Activism, right, the Birth of Center, right? And that sort of spontaneously led to this quite substantial growth to the point that there were multiple working groups in different sectors. So I'm active in the health working group. It's a kind of spontaneous self-organization, and I think the working groups have been, you know, variably effective in, in the health setting. We've seen quite incredible work done in relation to supporting community health workers to monitoring. Um, it sort of parallels the work of the CANs, the community action networks, which have been sort of spontaneous self-organizing responses where basically people say, well, you know, if government's not doing it, we're going to do it. Uh, and they do it to the extent they're allowed to by government. It's another point. Um, I was just on a conference uh, where someone from the CANs presented some of the work of the CANs and they made a comment that actually, even though the senior leadership and government were interested in supporting this, they just couldn't find ways or mechanisms to support the CANs to enable them to, to add value when they clearly could. And I've seen that a lot, you know. People understand conceptually that it's important, but some other systems don't let ordinary citizen creativity kind of get there. And the same will apply with vaccine um, hesitancy and vaccine take-up. We really do need to give you know, ordinary people the opportunity and the systems and the support to be able to make sure that the rollout works. Katisha, I almost want to bring you in here because as I'm hearing Leslie speak about, you know, giving people support, creativity, I know that you've done a lot of work around facilitating and I suppose opening up opportunity for people to think about innovation in, in various institutions. And you've done a lot of work on the continent supporting organizations in the health space to think about innovation differently. And I'm wondering, as you're hearing, you know, Leslie speak about the Community Action Network C19, what do you think are some of the elements in the system that have really sort of come together to make the moment possible for groups like this to actually emerge? Obviously, acknowledging that in South Africa, the civil society space has always been a very active space, but particularly around these organizations. That's a that's a great point. And I think, as Leslie was saying, this is the health system is historically been designed to be reactive, right? And it's not been designed to necessarily reach out to people. And in many ways, COVID-19 is this generational opportunity for us to address these existing gaps. Not only in our health system, it's shown that all health systems across the world have these gaps in social protection and social inequalities, health workforce issues. So it affects the most sophisticated all the way down to the, to the least resourced. But so in a way, this is like a real burning platform for creativity and innovation and showing unequivocally how interconnected health is in all facets of our life. So I think this is an opportunity and, and many of the organizations I've worked with in Africa have also kind of recognized this a little bit in turning to 
how do we create healthy communities? Um, how do we invest in that as opposed to a reactive health system that responds to a virus or a disease or an injury? You know, countries and regions where the health systems are more reliant on community health and stronger primary care systems have been shown to be way more agile in responding to the pandemic. So, so how can these lessons be included? as we're thinking about restoring our communities, looking forward to building our health system in a more community-focused way. So I think that's really exciting. I like what you're saying, Katisha, around the lessons that that we take from this. And, and Leslie, I almost want to bring you in, but particularly thinking about your work with the People's Health Movement and just thinking about what you've been advocating for around global health and thinking that before, you know, the pandemic sort of came, arrived in South Africa, we were thinking about the NHI, we were debating, you know, that those conversations around access to health for for everyone. I mean, and we know that the impact of the pandemic has meant that HIV, mental health, TB, all these other issues, are really big issues in our country, have almost taken a backseat in our health system as the pandemic has come full force front and center. And I guess for an individual like yourself who's involved in the advocacy within our health system, what do you think are the lessons that we then pull out once we start sort of taking that full big picture view? So, I mean, you're completely right because um, we have to be able to sort of reboot or restart with a different kind of trajectory. Uh, and I see a lot of discussion about putting the economy back on track. Well, you know, before COVID, we had one of the most, we had the most unequal economy in the world. Do we really want to go back to being the most unequal society in the world? We don't really. We want to go back to something that's a bit better than that. And I think part of the way to do that is that there's a greater voice for the community in decisions. So um, we have actually by law, for example, uh, in the health system, we have mandated by legislation every health facility, or every hospital, every clinic is meant to have a, a clinic committee, which is meant to be the voice of the community in relation to the health service. So conveying the needs of the community to the service and conveying issues, you know, information from the health services to the community in, the, in a sort of mutually constructive way. Uh, that's been in existence for 17 years and we still don't have functional committees. So when our uh, head of health says, you know, we need to do social distancing, we need all these measures in place, the only way that's going to work is if the community actually does it themselves, they organize it themselves. But we don't make the link to the CANs, to these health committees, to these community structures. And that's and that's what we need to do when we sort of reboot. We need to have a system which is responsive to communities and is able to, to respond. Secondly, uh, you mentioned the NHI. So national health insurance is about stewarding the entire health system not just, you know, the public sector there and the private sector there, and I will buy some services from GPs here, from specialists there. That's not what it's meant to be. It's meant to be we have the population's health at heart, including the migrants, <laughs> and we plan a system that addresses everybody. And how we get services, we can pick and choose and pay for it. That's part of the, the insurance side. Um, but we didn't actually see that with COVID, really. We saw the private sector sort of pulling in to some extent, but we had no kind of coherent stewardship of the private sector. Uh, so in the first wave, the private sector was underutilized. In the second wave, the private sector was overrun. Um, but now with the vaccine, it's actually quite interesting. There is a court application by 
solidarity and AFRI forum to say that they want to procure vaccine independently and have independence in who gets the vaccine. And the part of the government, you know, it's together saying no. Uh, the point being that you need one system. You can't have like multiple systems doing things because that's just the seed of inequality. That's our public-private divide that we've suffered from for so long. So if we learn from it, well, that will be good. Uh, and hopefully, you know, when we restart, we'll have thinking about how to make things less unequal going forward because inequality is bad for all of us. Uh, countries, actually, the inequality in health systems is the biggest predictor or one of the big predictors of poor health. It's not just lack of resources, it's the uneven distribution. So we should be concerned about that and having systems which are less unequal. Lizzie, thanks for preempting my question about the role of the private sector, because that's where I wanted to bring you in, Katusha, because in, in the article that you wrote in the Daily Maverick, you speak a bit about the role of the private sector during you know this period and in the procurement of the vaccine and the rollout. And I guess I wanted for you maybe to unpack for us, where do you think the private sector should intervene in the system? And maybe more specifically around what are the leverage points that make the most sense where the private sector can intervene, where we don't have what Leslie was speaking about, where we have two kinds of health systems that service different populations? So I think there's not a question that the private sector has to be involved in this. I mean, clearly, that's the only way um, this is going to be successful in least part because we have limited sources to fund this rollout. You know, we might need to increase taxes, we might need to borrow, but this will obviously raise our policy challenges. So private sector could, this is an opportunity for private sector to step up. You know, in 2020 alone, our GDP apparently shrank by more than 275 billion rand due to the pandemic. And so this is, the coffers are running dry. And although government is the channel to acquire the vaccines, I think private sector can participate in funding some of those costs and I think maybe helping with the distribution and administration. Maybe they could ensure a cross-subsidy of the of the public burden. That's that's one potential solution that I've seen. They could also, you know, medical schemes can also be called on to cross-subsidize the purchasing and distribution and administration of the vaccine. So I think where the private sector can, that burden can be alleviated. And that is where private sector can be um, incredibly helpful, I think. Thanks, Katusha. And I think both what came out in both your answers, um, Lizzie and Katusha, is this piece about collaboration. And I think for me, what's been really um, fascinating, Leslie, is to watch across South Africa and globally, the way that the pandemic has created the opportunities for, for collaboration. And I guess, what I was curious about and what I'm interested in is that particularly like in Cape Town, where we're located and in South Africa, we've seen, you know, Community Action Network, C19, we've seen other NGOs, the Section 27s all coming together. Sometimes there's overlap, sometimes there isn't. But I guess I wanted to ask what has made it easier for you and the organizations that are involved in the space to be able to pull in the same direction. But what has also made it hard? Because I don't think that's some of the conversations that we're having around what makes it hard to, to advocate, to organize when you have so many voices in the space? Or, or do we even have enough voices? Well, that's, that's a difficult question. So how do I answer that? So, you know, there are, there are broad issues that people agree on, and then there are specific issues that people will not agree on. So for, let me give you an example. We were having a discussion about, well, let's ask the Medical Association. The Medical Association is a very broad organization, consists of private sector doctors, public sector doctors, 
it has a history way back into apartheid as the Sama, the the, the medical so the master of the medical association of South Africa, which so so people are a little bit suspicious say, of, of the medical um, authorities. But of course, you know, if they if they support equitable access to the vaccines, then there's a place for them in the campaign. But there might be certain things which they don't want to support, which is, for example, the questions of intellectual property uh, and challenging the stranglehold of pharmaceuticals and biotechnology companies over intellectual property, which may act as a hindrance. So th- there are many reasons why these uh, alliances work or don't work, and I think uh, it's also a very a frantic moment, you know, and I think a lot of the the difficulties arise because it's there's just so much pressure to uh, you know go protest to the American embassy because they're opposing the waiver, and then next week it's something else. So uh, it's it's just in the nature of of activism. Um, I, I'm not sure that there's any particular answer to what makes it easy or difficult. It's just a very um, pressured environment at the moment. Katisha, and, and maybe some of your experience might have some lessons for us here. I'm just thinking about the work that you did with, with Sci-High and some of the lessons that you took out around organizations, you know, working together and, and reflecting on, on what Leslie has just said. What sort of sticks out to you about what you learned there and, and with that project? So SciHi, uh, the Social Innovation and Health Initiative, is something that the Bertha Center has been involved in for many years, and it is an a coalition, I suppose, of innovation centers based at academic institutions across the global south. Here in Africa, um, it's South Africa, it's Malawi, it's Uganda and Rwanda. Um, and it's been an opportunity for us to work together, to learn from one another. Specifically, we're working on a project with the World Health Organization that's being headed up by the Sci-Hi Hub in, at the University of Manila in the Philippines around community engagement package, you know, trying to better understand how countries and communities have responded to public health crises in the past and how we can learn from that and apply it to COVID-19. And then, of course, looking forward to the next public health crises. So I think as painful as COVID-19 has been, in many ways, it's brought health back as as a real issue for people. It's not health that happens to someone else or health that happens in a hospital. It's health that happens to you. You're seeing it happen to your neighbor. You're seeing it happen to your family member. We've all had to stay at home. I think it's the first time in many of our lives where we've all been so profoundly aware of what it is to be healthy. So so now we're sitting with this very deeply aware public and how can not only individuals, but also organizations like the Social Innovation and Health Initiative or the many community health-focused organizations, ministries of health, how can there be a role for all of us to kind of shape in what comes next? So I think that's been really interesting, not only to see it on a, you know, from a C19 coalition perspective, but also seeing it from the Sci-High perspective as well. You know, everybody's kind of coalescing around the same issues. And Katusha, I liked how you spoke about the the community engagement piece, because I, I want to bring us back to where we're currently at right now in South Africa with the rollout of, of the vaccine and thinking about how government is engaging with 
the community. And I think what's been interesting during this period is that a lot of the information out there is around trust the science. You know, it's it's safe. You can take it. But we're seeing that out there, people aren't necessarily hearing that. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of fake news. I mean, we know WhatsApp and Facebook. These are platforms that individuals are sharing this information on. And I guess the question that I wanted to ask from you, Leslie, is we've been through this process, you know, in the early 2000s around HIV and AIDS and, and the government, you know, we eventually got it right as, with civil society around communicating with the public really effectively. And I'm wondering what are the lessons we can pull from that period with what is happening today? So I think that's very important. Um, you know, the the treatment access movement in South Africa and globally succeeded because of two things. Firstly, it was uh, a lot of social mobilization. And secondly, people were informed. So every activist, every tech activist who went on a march knew something about a CD4 count and what it meant. Uh, they knew something about the science. Uh, and they might have been expert, actually, about the science more than many people. Uh, and that was because of an investment that tech and other organizations put into training, building people's capacity and understanding. And I think that is one lesson we have to take now. Um, the People's Health Movement is working with other organizations to do that in communities right now with sort of um, uh, training of trainer workshops, uh, setting up community monitors to feedback information around vaccine denialism. Um, that's going to be a huge task. So, so we've, we've reached, we've nearly reached the end of, of our podcast conversation for today. And I almost want to acknowledge how this is an ever evolving, you know, situation. By the time this podcast has been shared publicly, so much would have probably changed. I mean, even now, when we know that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine has arrived in South Africa, you know, there's conversations about when will the rollout kick off? Who's going to have access to it? Will the private sector also play a role in the rollout? And I guess in closing, I'd, I'd like some of your reflections, Katusha and Leslie, around now that we do have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, how different do you think the rollout and the public engagement will be compared to when we initially started talking about the vaccine, you know, thinking about all the pieces that we've been talking about in this episode? Leslie, I'll start with you. So we have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine arriving, but it's not coming in a big bolus. So we're still facing the hard choices of who gets it first and how do we organise that? I think when we were still preoccupied with AstraZeneca, we hadn't actually come to that kind of impasse. But at least in the Western Cape, I know there were discussions about, well, if we don't get enough to vaccinate people twice, who, who are we going to vaccinate twice or are we going to vaccinate everyone once and then hope for the best? Um, and so there began a, a, a discussion about the prioritisation and it became really clear that we have to have that discussion in a transparent way. So there has to be a, some sort of participative consultative process. And I would hope that with the Johnson & Johnson, we don't make the same mistake and sort of plow ahead and have experts decide who, who's going to get it because there will always be the satisfaction. And if we want to build trust in the program, we have to be more open and transparent about it. Um, the science will change, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe new studies will discover that the Johnson & Johnson isn't actually so effective against the variant or is better or... Um, you know, if you've been infected before, you don't need to be vaccinated. We don't know. There's a lot of things. Uh, so we have to be flexible as well. That's the point. We, we have to be able to, uh, what's the jargon? Pivot. So we were all like heading down the AstraZeneca route. Now we're heading down the J&J route. Next time we'll be heading down the Pfizer route or something else. And of course, on top of that, all, we can't forget the basic functions. We can't forget the basic need for 
preventive measures for COVID, and we can't forget the diabetics, uh, you know, the pregnant women who need to deliver their babies, the kids who need their vaccinations, people who need to be healthy, kids who need to learn, etc., etc. So it's a big ask, but you know, we can't do otherwise. Yeah, no, I think I think Leslie said it beautifully. I think transparency. Uh, I think the worst thing that could happen is is people get confused. You know, they've you know, first they said it was going to be Moderna, now they're saying it's going to be this and blah blah blah. What is it going to be? Okay, so now I just don't trust anything. So um, there needs to be um, way more transparency, and I think. Um, also, just to echo what what Leslie was saying, now is not the time to stop wearing our masks or to stop washing our hands or to stop social distancing. So, um, you know, even when the vaccine does come, we still have that obligation to our ourselves and to our fellow citizens to um, maintain those preventative measures. Leslie and Katusha, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It was wonderful to chat with you. We decided to ask a few people in our network how they have experienced the vaccine rollout around the world. Here's what they had to say. I'm currently living in Germany and the country has faced quite a few challenges with the rollout of the vaccine over here. Things such as the slow approval process by the EU and the manufacturing capacities that cannot meet the demand. We are behind other countries with only about 3% of our population having received a first dose. But the number of vaccinations being administered are increasing daily and our government is still promising the possibility of everyone having the option to receive the vaccine by the end of the European summer. It's looking positive. And what's great, the vaccine is actually rolling as millions have already been vaccinated. And yes, there are a few small delays, but it's still rolling and really happy to see friends and families are getting their loved ones vaccinated and protected. I wish this was the case in South Africa for my family as this means I won't be able to see them for another year, possibly. Vaccine rollout? What vaccine rollout? So, you know, Masogote, I do work with um, um, young women, Gauteng and in the Eastern Cape. But I think the conversations about vaccines, I've had them with young women here um, in Gauteng. So my experience is that although um, that they've heard about the vaccines in from media. There's still a, a, a high level of mistrust um, about the e- e- vaccine. Perhaps governments are missing crucial opportunities when they fail to engage and collaborate with people on the ground, people who live and work in some of the most vulnerable communities. Surely there is more that can be done to optimize what we have in terms of education about and the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. In our Positive Outlook segment, Simnigi Wekwanga speaks to Pumza Matwele, who is working in Kailicha and who shares her insights on community health. Hi there, this is Simnigi Wekwanga, and today we're excited to be talking to a graduate of the Raymond Aikerman Academy of Entrepreneurial Development, Pumza Matwele. Pumza is the founder of Unimike Trading and owner of two sharp left med stores the sole over-the-counter pharmacy, and a healthcare center in Kailicha in the Western Cape. Living and working in Kailicha, Cape Town's biggest township, especially during this time, Pumza will be sharing some interesting insights regarding the vaccine and the perception of it in a community like Kailicha. Welcome, Pumza. We're honored to have you on the Just for a Change podcast today. So, Pumza, where did it all start? Could you tell us what was the challenge 
And what solutions you envisioned to meet the challenge in your community? It all started at the Raymond Ekamen Academy, the School of Entrepreneur Development, uh, which is was 2015. I started, uh, which is by January. It's six months course. I finished by June, where we graduated. After I completed my studies with the academy through the collaboration of CIPLA and the Raymond Ekamen Academy, some group of the academy of about, uh, we're about like eight people, which is where students at the Ramon Academy, we, we graduated there, we set up to look into the challenges in the local communities, where it happened for me to be the one of the eight students, which is graduated in the Ramon Ekamen Academy. Uh, then the idea came to us, it, it came to us, of setting up mini clinics and medication shop in the local communities where people can access basic medication and first aid services. But the dream was materialized through Raymond Ekerman Academy and CIPLA Foundation. Thank you, Pumza. We're interested to know what Sharp Left does. How does it meet a need in the community? Shop left med store. We sell over the counter medication, which is as uh, uh, like um, arthritis, diabetes, high blood, all those range. We do give a uh, uh, first aid services, which is if you have minor injuries, which is we do give, and we do um, body scan, which is also we give that service. Also, it gives us opportunity to our clients which is it helps also for people as people that did the scan. Also, they give reference to others, most of the customer when they come far places. Thank you, Pumza. It sounds like um, you've actually touched on something that's very important and that your approach to this business has been more a patient-centered approach and has the community in mind. Do you think there are more possibilities for the government to partner with healthcare providers working on the ground in communities, specifically in the education and rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine? Yes, we think, but not really, uh, because that one, it will only really depend on the government plan to do so, which is no individual can decide on that. But as shop left also, we will really appreciate also to work with government because it's not something common as a small businesses to work with government. We really appreciate because we are working on medication and also we face all these challenges, all this pandemic and our clients, they do come because they are having this challenge, the heat outside everybody. So it can help us to teach our people about this uh, COVID-19 vaccine because some people, they never understand this vaccine story. So we work with government. Also, it can be opportunity for shop left med store. Mm, indeed. And also what you've highlighted is the is access and partnering up with people that are already doing this work on a bigger scale. And with that in mind, quality healthcare is something Many will take for granted, but it is not something easily available in some communities, as we know. Um, how have you ensured that you deliver quality health care on a consistent basis? We have a brand to maintain, and that is our quality service, because we always make sure 
our clients get what they need. That's what we always make sure. And also we always make sure where we get our product. It is a, a, a well-known branches, which is our supply. Also, we are always carefully which way we're buying our medication so that our clients also, they can see that what we're selling also get, they can get it like in malls, in towns, not like we sell something like they cannot find where maybe they are. Indeed, Pumza. Could you, could you share with us more on the trust, when, especially when medication is introduced in communities? And as a member of the community, how have you built that trust over uh, time and being the one that's administering all this medication? How have people taken up on trusting you as a provider and as a service provider within a community setting? Yes, it was a challenge from the beginning when we started Shop Left Med Store. But as time goes on, we learn a lot through our clients and through uh, we have to learn about the medication that we buy and what we give to the clients. That is why we always need to be close to the clients before we give any medication, anything. We have to inquire and ask more questions before we give the client the medication. Pumza. We've spoken a lot around access and community setting um, and with the vaccine. What value would you think you'd have an input in? How would you like to be of support in terms of the rollout of the vaccine or uh, in the position that you're in as a healthcare uh, support in your community? What value do you think you would bring at this moment that we're in? Shop left med store. Yes, we really appreciate as a small business who can have opportunity to work with government. One, as I said before, our people they need more education about COVID-19 vaccine, which is also can change their mindset, which is for us shop left can be happy to deliver the vaccine to our people, which is our people they can appreciate. As for government, so if you can work with us. Government can like support us with a nurse, which is a nurse that having a dispensing license, a nurse that qualifies to do all the process. Because us, we do have a nurse, but our nurse, she is working in hospital full time, which is, it might be difficult for her also. We appreciate the government if we can have that collaboration with the government and also we collaborate with the community. Shop left can give a vaccine, which is a vaccine. A vaccine can be free, which is they are not gonna pay. Which is people then get they can get it closely where they will not go and queue to the clinic or go and queue to another health facilities because some people they will complain that no, I don't have money to take taxi to go to the clinic. That's why I couldn't get the vaccine. But also if they can have the vaccine around where they can just walk in and have it, we can have someone that is educated more than us about the COVID-19, which can give more value to our people. Thank you, Pumza. You've shared some amazing insights. And um, from what I gather from you, really support from uh, government or expertise when it comes to information uh, would really benefit you um, so that you can give that service to, um, to the community that you serve. 
Ultimately, South Africa's success or failure in terms of the vaccine rollout is not a country issue. In their scramble to vaccinate their own populations, wealthier countries are missing an obvious lesson in how systems work. Everything is interconnected, as the pandemic has shown us all too clearly. A failure to ensure that all the world is safely vaccinated will ultimately come back to haunt all nations. The longer the virus is allowed to spread unchecked, the greater the chances of mutations that could render the vaccines we do have less effective. Get involved with the Bertha Center's drive for a people's vaccine. Find out what needs to be done to have the COVID-19 vaccine declared a public good. For more information, click on the link in the show notes. Thank you for tuning in to Just For A Change, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. The podcast where we offer new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. If you're curious about solving social issues in your community or believe we can make a positive, tangible difference in the world, then make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Also, remember to have a look at the show notes if you're interested in finding out more about the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship.